Hold on and buckle up. You're about to ride into a place of theological sanity with Appalachian Anglican. Ecclesia Appalachia Missio Mundi. And welcome back to Appalachian Anglican. I'm Joshua. I'm Adam. And I'm Daryl. And today we will be talking about branch theory. What? Yes, branch theory. So I'm going to give a brief definition. Thank you, because I was going to wonder, like, branch theory, are we talking about interdisciplinary conversation in universities or what? That's when you first introduced this, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Uh, I will say, before you read the definition, this was specifically a topic specifically requested. Uh, some months ago. So we got it worked into this this uh, batch of episodes. All right, then. Here we go. Branch theory is an ecclesiological proposition. What's that, that word? The one Catholic <laughs> apostolic church. I say that again for me. <laughs> Ecclesiastes, what? <laughs> I'm sorry. He's just, I can't even give it. I was trying my best, man. I couldn't do it. All right. <laughs> I struggled with the first part. The branch theory is an ecclesiastical. I say it one more time. Branch theory is an ecclesial, ecclesiological proposition. What's that word mean? Ecclesiological. It means, um, churchy. Yes, I was going to say church because ecclesia Don't, is the yeah, root right, of that. Mm-hmm. Right. Very good. Um, branch theory is an ecclesiological proposition that the one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church includes various different Christian denominations whether in formal communion or not. The theory, and that's where I'm just going to stop because the rest of it just kind of gets outside of a definition. So correct me if I'm wrong, Josh. It's a way to explain why they are still united and Catholic, even though um, there is a wanting or a lacking invisible unity. Yes. And that is a contemporary, more contemporary perspective. Because the branch theory, which really finds its roots, well, we could trace it further back in other, through other veins, and we'll talk about some of that. But it gets popularized, let me put it that way, popularized to the Tractarians, the Oxford Movement, in an attempt, um, part of an attempt, part of their overall argumentation for the Church of England and the Anglican branch of Christ's One Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church in contrast to the Roman church and the Orthodox churches, the Eastern churches, primarily, because the Anglican church up until that point had maintained the apostolic succession. And I could argue, and they would probably argue, probably all the Anglicans up until probably 1930 would argue that was the case, even the, and, and they would also concede that there are portions and large pockets of the Anglican Church today where the succession has been broken. That's a different discussion for another topic. But it was not interdenominational. That is the newer concept. When they were first positing this, as they were uh, freshly articulating, if you will, the historic teaching of the church. They were not looking at denominations. They were looking at it through a provincial understanding. So much so that when the British government 
established a Protestant or an Anglican bishop in Jerusalem, both the high churchmen and the Oxford movement were very angry because there was already a bishop in Jerusalem. Why do we need another one? We're going against the very principles of Catholic ecclesiology, which we might get into that point a little bit or not, but um, which is a big deal because, you know, the Anglican Bishop of Jerusalem has been there so long now. I mean, he's part of the fabric and the makeup of the, of the Holy Land, right? And I'm not knocking him at all in any way whatsoever. We're talking about historical movements here, the developments. So in this branch theory of the Catholic Church, the idea is articulating what's coming out of the scripture that the church has always been geographically organized. And within that singular geographic space, there was one visible church. So whether we're talking about a city like Corinth or a region like Galatia, it was always geographically organized. And then the further out the boundaries go, the church expands in that diocesan way because the smallest unit for a church is not the local parish, but the diocese. The diocese is the smallest unit for a church. And dioceses comprise a province, right? So the branch theory says the Roman church is part of Christ's one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The Eastern churches, and in Eastern churches, we would say Greek. So Greece, um, uh, Syria, uh, I think it depends on who you ask. Some people would, would put in the, the Nestorian churches. Some wouldn't. Uh, even the Coptic churches in Egypt, some would put in them. Some wouldn't. But I think that Russia, that kind of gets to the idea of what's going on and how this is organized. And that the Church of England is part of that branch because of its apostolic apostolicity, the apostolic succession. And remember, the apostolic succession should not be reduced to the imposition of the laying on of hands through clergy, but also includes some other things that are pretty important as well, you know, the sacraments, et cetera, scripture. But that's, that's part of the, the umbrella discussion. So the new part here is by moving it, moving the goal line. So we're not talking about provinces, we're talking about denominations. And this is an important thing because there are many Christian denominations who do not agree with the creed and do not believe in a visible church, and do not believe in water baptism, and do not believe in the books of Scripture. They don't believe in the tactile apostolic succession. Right? They, they intentionally jettison certain doctrines. They redefine the doctrine of the Incarnation. They redefine the doctrine of the Trinity. They redefine the doctrine of, of uh, ministerial work. They'll use the same term, but they completely redefine it. The clearest way to identify that is your big uh, thing that you were you love that you were just playing for us before this started is to look at Mormonism, which is an entirely different polytheistic kind of religion that uses Christian terminology. But it it's polytheistic. It's got a, an entirely different canon of scripture that's essentially fabricated. It's got its own clergy and ministers. It's got its own doctrine of salvation. It's got its own whatever. You're going down the line. 
it's a different religion. It's called a Christian cult because it uses Christian um, terminology. I'm not downing Mormons. I'm not putting them down in any way. But when we're talking about ideas and we're talking about the relationship between these things, when we jump into Christian denominations, well, as far as the secularists are concerned, Mormonism is, our, Mormonism is just another denomination. So how this stuff gets quantified is really, really important. So I don't like that particular newer definition that says it's denominational. No, it needs to be thought in a provincial terms. But then that goes to something you mentioned, Adam, but right when we were getting started, is that when you study this, you suddenly come away with this, well, what in the world are we supposed to do? Because so many American churches, whether they're independent, they're mega church evangelical, they're, you know, let's start our, like, we, we got a great TV program, we've been around 50 years, and we've got, you know, a million people in our movement, to, and they create their own stuff. What do you do with that? Well, even you look at the condition of Anglicanism in America due to the depravity of the Episcopal Church. What do you do with that? Because it's not just like we have one, truly one Anglican body in America. Like this really does raise questions in all of this. Good questions. Yeah, good, healthy questions to process through. So would one of those questions be, what is the church? Well, I mean, obviously, we've already no. That is a good question, cases, but, I, but I think when it comes to this topic, we introduced it. But I think if we'd spend some more time looking at what the scripture says, this it's kind of like this: the Sunday school class I've been teaching on angels and demons. We've got to lay, or, or even the apostolic succession. What is it, right? We've got to lay the foundation for what is true as taught by scripture and is understood by the consensus of the church through history. Um, we have to start there. Now, the, the moment we do that, we start making some very strong, non-negotiable truth, truth claims. That has to begin first before you start coming up with the in, invariable American evangelical question. Well, am I even saved then? Because that's always what happens. I get that question. I'll start talking about any theological point you want, and somebody will aver- invariably the first three questions that come out of their mouth is typically, well, am I saved? How did you get there from what we're talking about? Right. And, and questions and questions of, of ecclesiology. Yeah. That is a question you want to bring up, but probably not the first one, unless you're coming from a doctrine or, or you're coming from one of these quote, quote, Christian perspectives that doesn't believe in the Trinity and the full divinity of Christ. Right. So, and humanity. So th- there's the full doctrine of Christ, put it that way. Uh, that is, that does become a necessary question, but we've got to, we got to, we got to reckon with this and really let the teaching of scripture and the consensus of the church establish the threat, the, the, the sledge, right? The sledgehammer, the, uh, that thing that's hard and fixed that is destructive to all of our contemporary philosophies. Yeah, I agree. Because really what you're answering is who has the authority to say, what is a schism and what is a branch? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned like, the Episcopal Church. They, I know, I've, I know a lot of guys in the Episcopal Church who look at the ACNA as a schismatic. Mm-hmm. And so you you somehow have to quantify this. Mm-hmm. So let's 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 do what we do as uh, in accordance with the the practice of the ancient fathers. 
and our magisterial reformers, and let's go to Scripture first. Let's, let's see what the Scripture says. I've, I've mentioned um, the, the, well, let me back up. There are seven churches that Paul writes to. There are seven churches that John writes the Revelation to. And then we've got seven general epistles. Kind of a big deal. And then while it's not in the canon of Scripture, you see the, uh, the theme maintained. Ignatius of Antioch writes to seven churches. So they, they were kind of aware of this paradigm. Seven representing, you know, a holistic, comprehensive view. And if we just focus in on Paul for a moment, Paul writes to the city of Corinth, the city of Ephesus, the city of Colossae. And um, what's, what's significant about Colossae, Colossae and Ephesus is that they are roughly in the same geographic region in the Lycus Valley. In that same valley is Laodicea. And you see this in, in John's uh, letter to the Revelation, the circular nature of the Revelation to the seven churches there in Asia Minor. Um, so, but those are specific cities, okay? But then Paul writes to the Galatians, which is not a city. Galatia is a region. So there would have been many churches in the Galatian area that that letter was addressed to that were all kind of caught up in the same activities because of their, um, probably because of their regular intercommunion with each other. So were they called Galatians? Yeah, it's like, it's like saying the Shenandoah Valley or saying the D.C. metro area, right? It, it speaks to a, uh, it's not, it is a geographic uh, place, but there's many churches within it instead of a singular city, like when he writes to Rome. And Rome is so big as far as ancient cities go that Rome looks like it has multiple bishops, not because it's got a Presbyterian government, because that just doesn't exist. In the New Testament, and I know Presbyterians are going to get would get upset about that, but I just I don't see any textual or historical warrant for that. When we what when we see what looks like a number of bishops in the city of Rome at the same time, it's because of the size of Rome. So instead of having one guy oversee the entirety of Rome itself, there are quadrants or or, or places within Rome and its particular environs where you've got a bishop. And it looks like it's like that for a little while, um, until ultimately, as they as they do more organization, they they get into the the singular bishop of Rome, and we're talking a, a several decades there in that process, not like hundreds of years, because the earliest records identify Peter, Linus, Anacletus, and Clement in that order. When uh, Irenaeus gives us the list of bishops in Rome in his day, he lists them in an order. So I bring that up because you can see different, depending on the historian that you're reading, they'll, they'll point out those two themes. But uh, it's like saying, you know, because something happened for a 15-year period in the church, that is the definitive metric by which we judge things. And that's not true. Anybody who's been in pastoral ministry for over 15 years can see that's, that's not a good metric, just in his own church. Um, but Paul writes to geographic places because the church in that place is the church of that place. Well, the there, other key, I guess what you're trying to hit at it is like, there was like one church for the area and there wasn't like 15 churches in one city. There could have been 15 meeting places for the one church because all of the priests or the elders over Ozanim in, in, the, in the Hebrew, but in the Greek, you know, presbyteros. The priest 
would have been presiding over the particular meetings and the bishop presiding over all of them. More often than not, especially at this very early age, is that the bishop was presiding over the whole gathering, typically in a very large house or in the catacombs or in some cases like uh, in such a way that they could be protected from the, the, the you know, prying eyes because porters were a suborder in the church and porters are basically your doorkeepers. They're the guys who would guard the door. You couldn't come in unless they knew you. You weren't even allowed to come into the church unless you were known by the church. You, somebody had to invite you in. Think about like, you know, um, particular nightclubs. You can't get in unless you got a pass or you're somebody's guest or a rotary club. You know, you can't come in unless somebody invites you. The church was like that in the first centuries. You couldn't just show up. They didn't go out and put out signs and say everybody's welcome because you weren't. You weren't welcome to come in unless you had repented of your sins. That's not, not, that's not, very, uh, that's not very accepting. It's not very loving. Well, that's what, people, that's what they would say today. Look at that group of people. They don't, why, aren't yeah. they, why aren't they more like Jesus? He ate with sinners and tax collectors. And then people who say that today typically say Jesus was approving of their behavior, which is why he ate with them. That's not the case. He was ate with them to call them to repentance. But nonetheless, the, the letters are written to specific geographic places. And then when you study Paul's comments in First and Second Corinthians, he has the expectation that the doctrine, the moral behavior, and the liturgical practices amongst all of them would be the same. In 1 Corinthians, women wearing head coverings is something amongst all the churches, not just Corinth. Now, this is a big deal. I'm not going to get into head coverings, but th this principle is a big deal because what's happened is that contextualization is the bug buzzword now. And contextualization has been so misappropriated for missional purposes that it basically means that we can change almost anything that we feel we need to change. Now, everybody who wants to argue for contextualization will say, no, that's not true. There are certain parameters around it that we uh, go by because Paul, amongst the Gentiles, acted like a Gentile, but amongst the Jews, he kept the law. Okay, yeah, that's true, right? We, we know that's true. But when Paul was amongst the Gentiles, he didn't set one moral, one liturgical, and one doctrinal standard between Ephesus and Corinth. He gave them the same. The Gentiles had the same moral liturgical, and doctrinal expectations. So could there be contextualization as to what he ate when he was at the particular cities or when they washed their feet walking in off the street? Sure, because those are customs. But these other things are fixed in a very particular way. And the Anglican reformers knew it, which is why they made a prayer book. And the prayer book was imposed. You had to keep it. Yesterday was Charlesmas. Saint celebration of Saint Charles, Charles King and Martyr. That's right. The first Charles the first who was beheaded by the Presbyterians, the Puritans, and part of the reason that's built into his the problem they had with him is he was imposing the prayer book upon the Scots who were Presbyterian, and they didn't like it. When the Puritans come to Massachusetts, the Pilgrims, it's to flee religious persecution. The religious persecution that the Pilgrims are fleeing. Is the Church of England saying you have to have bishops, you have to, uh, and you have to submit to the prayer book? You have to use the prayer book in worship. That's the religious persecution they're fleeing. Now you take that and you put it in the context with Paul and Paul's letter to the Corinthians. 
when he's arguing against the super apostles. I mean, let the, let the churches tell Paul he's not in charge. He doesn't, he doesn't do well with that. He doesn't do well with that. Um, and I don't have time to get into to other kinds of church polity. But the point is that, I hope the point is that Paul is writing to specific cities where the church is gathered, and they're essentially one, even though they're like an archipelago. They're spread out across distance like, like a chain of islands. I cannot spell archipelago. That's a great word. <laughs> but you pronounced it very well. That's very good. Yeah. Yeah. Much better than, what'd you say? Ecclesiological. That, that's a tongue twister of a word. Ecclesiological. Yeah. Yeah. I practiced that one in the mirror this morning. You got, you got archipelago <laughs> down really good. I'm not but, lying. <laughs> that, that's how the churches are organized. And they're consistently one. And when one of the churches wants to deviate from doctrine, discipline, uh, the doctrine, the moral behavior, and the liturgical practices, Paul rebukes them for it. That's what he's doing to the Corinthians because they're deviating from the expectations. They're deviating in such a way that they're walking apart from the rest of the church. Notice that all of this is happening without a singular ecclesiastical voice governing all of them in an absolute way. That doesn't exist. If it existed, we would see it. It doesn't exist in Scripture, and it doesn't exist in the early centuries. The rise of the papacy is a historical development, and every good Roman Catholic theologian will tell you that. And they will say it's, it's a necessary development with qualifications. And I think depending upon what those qualifications are, you can make an argument for it. But if you're going to go with what Scripture says and the broader consensus of Christian history uh, and tradition speaks to, it's much better to have the primus inter paris, the first amongst equals, than it is to have an absolute voice. And that's, that's, that's one of the reasons I'm not Roman Catholic. But that's a different, we, because Rome, Rome would subscribe to large portions of this branch theory. So would the Orthodox, and so would so many others. Um, most Protestants in America, Protestant evangelical churches, they would probably to an extent say yes, but we, we, we hold the right to our particular beliefs and traditions. Well, that is, that is on the precipice, if not already in schism. Well, I mean, it's, it's like you mentioned the Apostle Paul, and he brought a lot to the Corinthians. Yes. A lot. And one of the first things he was writing in the first couple chapters of the first Corinthians, his first letter, or one of his letters, it was about one being a part of Paul, one being a part of Apollo. Yeah, the, the party spirit. Different. Yeah. So like, if he's telling them in the first chapter of Corinthians, hey, don't do this. Like you all belong to Christ. So he's not, he's not just setting up. Not Never mind. Keep going, buddy. I mean, I guess, I guess my only point, my only reason for pointing that out is just to say like the apostle Paul, before he even gets into any of the corrections and anything, he's telling people, Hey, you can't have that mentality being a part of the church. Like you all belong to Christ. Like it, you're one in that sense. To belong to Christ, as Paul's pointing out in the Corinthians, means that they coexist as an interdependent body in a singular place, Corinth, and that their singular body is interdependent with the rest of the churches in other places. So the unity is not just within their own gathering, 
by not being divided by their favorite preacher or teacher, but their unity expands out to the rest of the churches so that they're all organizationally one. And that's where things like intercommunion comes from, is when the bishop or the priest from one church is going to another church and the other church is not in town. The other church is in a different town. It's in a different place. The parish system in the Church of England um, and at the Reformation, and it was this way for hundreds of years, really preserved a lot of this. And as much as I love Wesley, he's one of the main uh, antagonists against that paradigm because he would cross parish boundaries and infamously said that the world is my parish, meaning I'll go preach wherever I want to. Well, well, and we, and we see what that, that kind of leads to, um, this idea that pretty much takes the branch theory and then kind of throws it out and this idea of like just the invisible unity. Yeah, it, it, Again, it's that's no longer it, visible. That's right? what, yeah, that's what it leads to, of even though there's no... A disincarnated Christ. Exactly. Yeah. And says that... It's, it's an interesting idea to me, because at its core, it is antithetical to itself. So it's just this idea that we are these multiple denominations or groups. Some of them aren't even groups, it's just a church. And this whole idea that says, well, even though we are not visibly unity, unified, we are invisibly unified because of our, they'll give different speculations for that. But ultimately at the core of that is, well, but we think we're right. Right. That's right. The, they, or else they, they would have dissolved and joined someone else. If they thought that somebody else was more correct than they, would, they were, then that would have been the next step. They, they so organize in their own internal polity that they make themselves the church. Yeah. I know one Pentecostal denomination that I was uh, affiliated with for a while had written in their bylaws. Uh, and for those who don't know, in the, on the Anglican perspective, on the Anglican side and, and the more Catholic side, bylaws for churches like that are the equivalent to canons, or the rules, okay? Um, but in the bylaws, it, it was stated that if you went from one district to the next, you had to get the approval of the district, district superintendent of the place to where you were going to have permission to minister in the churches. And so right there is the principles of the early church, but within a much smaller contingency instead of the global church. Because we have that practice as Anglicans, because we're, we are part of that Catholic body, that if a bishop ordains somebody and that person want, you know, is invited or goes to minister in another jurisdiction, another diocese, the bishop of that diocese has to give him permission, has to give him license. And in the prayer book, if you look at the prayer book, no one can preach in a parish, unless he has a license to preach from the bishop who's there, he's got a permission. And the different, the different dioceses do this differently. Some bishops, it's very particular. You know, I want to know the specific name of the person who's coming to preach in my church. You may be the rector there, but that's my church, and I want to know who's going to pre be preaching there. The dioceses that subscribe a bit more to subsidiarity, the bishops typically say, I trust your judgment, or I wouldn't have put you in there anyway. So. I reserve the right to bring correction, but as far as the general operations go, you're free to bring in who you want. And that's much more of an American development than, than, than other, the other. How much of that do you think is the, the active idea of subsidiarity in their minds and just the idea, like leadership style? Um, you know, I don't, I, I'm not trying to put those in juxtaposition. I don't, I don't, I don't know how to answer that because I don't, even breaking it, talking about this concept today, branch theory, I don't know how much of the, Use the ACNA, for example. 
because that's that's you know where I'm swimming most of the time now. I don't know how many people in our movement that are coming in from other evangelical, charismatic, Presbyterian bodies, et cetera, are even aware of this concept. It, it had no part in their formation and discussion. And they still believe basically what's been said amongst American evangelicals for 70 or 80 years. You know, like they, they and I, this is not an accusation, but this is just my observation, okay? They, they've never actually been told what the apostolic succession is historically, right? Or what ecclesiology is and the relationship between bishop, rector, or bishop, priest, deacon, or rector and other clergy in the parish. Um, you know, I, I don't know that that's even, that's, that, that's happening. I know that there's a push, I've been told, I'm not, I don't know this firsthand. I know that the, from what I've been told by those in the seats of authority, if you will, that there is a bigger push amongst the College of Bishops that this stuff start to happen because they're discovering how much is not actually known. Because it looks like you're getting a Pentecostal or you're getting a Presbyterian who suddenly realizes, hey, I want to be in the historic church and I like cool vestments. <laughs> I mean, I'm, kind of, I'm, being, yeah. I'm being kind of goofy with it, but that's why some of them are coming in and they don't know that there's an actual form here that is an organic development over centuries millennia that participates in the comprehensive nature of Christ's singular church that has roots in the British Isles. That's what it is to be Anglican. I'm like, I'm not an Englishman. My ancestors are, I did, I did ancestry, uh, but my ancestors are from the UK, but my direct and immediate ancestors came across the Atlantic ocean on the boat with William Penn and helped him establish Pennsylvania. They, they were, uh, so older ancestors were pretty important in England, you know, but, and then, but some, the ones I'm descendant, descendants from, um, came with William Penn. And so we've been here since long before there was even an American revolution, right? So I'm an American. I'm about as American as you can get. And uh, why would I say that I'm an Anglican? What's going on with that? It's a, it's a, it's a state, it, and that's a particular dynamic that's happened, not just because of like colonialism, but in the way that the American landscape is even shaped. Not only am I, am I an American, I'm, an, I'm a West Virginian. I've lived in other states, but my primary, the bulk of my growing up years was in West Virginia. Not all of it, but most of it. And most of my adult life has been in West Virginia. So there's a very particular context. And this goes back to the contextualization thing I was talking about. It is important, but too often it gets jettisoned to excuse and approve a bunch of other stuff. The scripture says no to. Scripture wouldn't approve of. Um, the branch theory really pulls us back into a much more, a more biblical uh, perspective on how the church is organized. And what's supposed to be happening within the church? So I, I think that's a, if we can, if we can start there, you know, and we haven't even gotten into some of the other stuff that we need to get to here, but that shift is necessary for all of the difficulty it creates for contemporary people who don't think, when I say don't think historically, they don't even think about what they did last year, let alone what the church has always been doing. Yeah. I mean, considering that most 
evangelical denominations or churches in America, independent or otherwise, are their theology, most of it, it's like, what, 300, 400 years old most, most of the time? Not saying that for everybody, so I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus. Well, most, your, most of your denominational creations are within the past 100, 100 years. Right, especially years. in America. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we could have carried that around the world, though, so. We did. Yeah, they got that from us. Or some of them did. I'm not saying that we were the only people sitting missionaries. That's not. But a lot of the negative things, unfortunately, you can trace back to us. And so this is where I think, like the Vatican II started using the phrase ecclesial body. And I think they got that from Lambeth, not the Lambeth Conference directly, but when you go back and you look at the Chicago Lambeth Quadrilateral and the specific Anglican attempts to create and foster good ecumenical unity and what's expected in that process. What do you do with all of the Christian groups that deny something that's intrinsically part of the Catholic faith? Like the sacraments? Yeah. What do you do with them? They, they make an active profession of faith. They have an emotional love for the Lord. I think today a lot of people would have some kind of emotional love for the Lord, but they don't know how to fear the Lord. They don't, to lo- they don't know how to love the Lord with their mind. It's, it's a very deficient gospel. Not so, but I, I'm not sure that it's deficient to say that they're out of the kingdom. Again, look at the Corinthians. But it's deficient and it needs to be corrected. And so with that, let me, let me dovetail now into something else about this from the, the New Testament. It will help us with this perspective, especially as we think about other denominations or other ecclesiastical groups, okay? And it's really coming from the day of Pentecost that the apostles, right, are preaching the gospel in languages they don't know, and people are hearing the gospel in their own languages. And the text seems to indicate that after Pentecost, these people go back to where they're from. But they're not apostles. They're not evangelists. They're lay people. And they carry the gospel with them back into these other places. And what probably develops? Churches. Church groups, Bible studies, prayer meetings, that that kind of stuff starts to take place, right? When you come into Acts chapter 11, and starting in verse 19, we get some details about what happens after the persecution of Stephen by Paul. So once the uh, Stephen is killed and, and the Christians start to flee, the text says in Acts 11, 19, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So here is this lay movement of men and women preaching Jesus to everybody who will listen. And as they're preaching Jesus, Jesus is confirming his word with power. He's doing, he's doing miraculous things. The hand of the Lord is, was with him. That's not an arbitrary statement from Luke. He means that there are, there, is, there are miraculous things that are taking place confirming the gospel that's being preached. When the Spirit goes before the word arrives, he's preparing the people to hear the word that they may be, may be brought into the kingdom. Whenever the word goes forth, the Spirit goes with the Word to accomplish the thing that the Word is addressing. That's how Christ's incarnation, one of the ways the incarnation is manifest is through that sacramental understanding of gospel proclamation. Okay? 
But the point here is that the first place where Christians get called Christians in Antioch is a lay movement. There's no clergy there. We don't, we don't even have names of the people who are responsible for what's going on in this passage. But it becomes such a significant movement, so many conversions, and in all probability, baptisms. There's so much that's going on, word gets back to Jerusalem. And then the apostles, ex apostello, they send as an official delegate the prophet Barnabas. And Barnabas goes up and he oversees what's going on, and then he begins the process of confirming them. And so the organizational principle that's often connected with the apostolic succession doesn't exist until Barnabas arrives. And even what he does is very preliminary, eventually until Peter himself shows up, giving even further confirmation to what's going on. And then tradition tells us that Peter lived in Antioch for seven years. And it was after his wife died in Antioch, he went to Rome. But as far as the growth and the development of the church is, here's an example between, you know, Pentecost itself here in Antioch, and then go to Acts 19 with Ephesus. And we know from Acts 19 that when Paul gets to the Ephesian believers, the Ephesian disciples, he's not even sure they're fully converted yet because something is, is, is giving him the clue. He's cluing him in. He says, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they're like, what are you talking about, man? Who's that? <laughs> and so he says, well, what, then were you baptized in? And so he realizes that here, Apollos has come through, who's an eloquent speaker, but he doesn't know the way of Jesus accurately, Luke says. So Apollos is going around kind of like John the Baptist. He's, at this point anyway, he's creating these communities of disciples waiting for the message of Christ because he doesn't have, there's no instant communication. There's no newspaper saying what well, Jesus already came and died and John's been beheaded, all that kind of stuff. Apollos is out being like a John the Baptist. Well, Paul comes in, finds these group of disciples who've been prepped like John the Baptist prepped Israel. Then Paul gives them the gospel, baptizes them, lays hands on them, and they receive the spirit. And they get a massive outpouring. Point being is that the gospel is preached uh, outside of and beyond the local church. Christ is not bound to the church. The church is bound to Christ. And so the gospel is always going out, it's always going forward. And this is where like denominations, this is where independent missionaries, this is where um, evangelists, guys who are, who are not connected with the apostolic succession to kind of bring it forward a little bit. It is a dangerous thing to look at them and say that they are invalid as messengers of the gospel. It's a dangerous thing to say that they have not been sent by the Lord to do what they're doing. We don't know that. In fact, God may have indeed raised them up in some Elijah kind of sense to send them out to preach in this prevenient preparatory way. Paul himself is sent out by the church of Antioch, he and Barnabas, in Acts 13, at a command from the Holy Spirit before he has been formally recognized by the apostles in Jerusalem. That happens later on in Galatians 2. So you've got this dynamic of church growth, expansion, and multiplication that's not restricted. That's a key phrase here. That's not restricted to the apostolic succession. And when the apostolic succession becomes aware of those movements and graces, they go to confirm. They go to validate. And they bring with them 
all that Jesus commanded them to do and teach. They're bringing with them fullness. They're bringing with them completion, which is represented through the apostles as the agents of confirmation with laying on of hands. Uh, Peter and John, when they go to Samaria, Paul, when he's in Ephesus, right? Uh, Again, in a smaller way, Barnabas and Antioch, when he's confirming them. So the branch theory is not addressing evangelistic method and how the church grows quickly. It is in places where the church hasn't been. It's addressing how the church grows. I won't say it doesn't address it. It's addressing more focusedly how the church matures in the places where it is. Because whenever, whenever the disciples, these who are who will come to the Lord through lay preachers, etc., meet the bishops, the priests, and the deacons, they listen to them. And if they don't listen to them, they're driven, they're 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 excommunicated from the community. When Paul says, warn an unruly man once, and after that have nothing to do with him. Unruly there is a specific Greek word that means submitted to ecclesiastical authority. It doesn't just mean that he's disruptive in a service, although that could be part of it. He's saying that the, the people who don't listen to you, Timothy, to you, Titus, to, to the leaders that he has set in place are dismissed from fellowship. That's how you start getting a much more organized and cogent definitive body that's known as the church. And then the schisms that come through Christian history are the people who break away from that body. Where the discernment has to come in is who is the schismatic? And for that, we are not going to be able to pour over the pages of the New Testament to find it written plainly. We have to go back and read the history of Israel in the Old Testament. And that gives us the paradigm and the parameters to interpret through the New Covenant and then to look at the immediate thing in front of us. And we have multiple cases historically of that, the Arian controversy being one of the biggest ones. When your bishop becomes an Arian and the priests become an Arian and the deacons become an Arian and half the church becomes an Arian, who's the schismatic? And so, you, and, and the church takes time to work through that, right? So you've got all that going on in the development and in the way that we think theologically and live out our life as the church. The problem with that first definition you read about making this about denominations. Most denominations never look at any of this. They don't, and they don't divide over doctrine. They divide over custom and anathematize each other over custom. It's, it's, it's so reckless and, and, and full Would you of, say that's more limited to the ahistorical view of the church and stuff like that, or just the people that look at things or just on any side of it? I, I guess what I'm asking is, sorry, confusing question. My bad. Sure. What I'm trying to say is like, would you say like the people that divide over those customs, are they most of the time the people that look at things through the lens of an ahistorical church where they're not really looking at? Oh, like the through, church without fathers. a historical, yes. ahistorical. Yes. Or is it more the yeah, people? Yeah. I think it's side? a big part of it, man. I think it's ahistorical and they don't know it because they've been taught to read the Bible as if it's just me and my Bible. And when I read the Bible, as if I've never read it before, then Jesus will speak to me more clearly, which is fundamentally, quintessentially, down at the very core of ultimate truth and reality, the exact and utter antithesis of how we are supposed to read Scripture. Because we don't even know what the Scripture is, what should comprise the Scripture, without the living witness of the church. And that's where you, you can look at these denominational perspectives 
and say, and people say, well, I don't, I don't submit to the apostolic succession. I don't submit to bishops. Well, you got a Bible? Well, yeah. Then you already have. Because that's, that's where you, you already, but except you're submitting to bishops in the past who made a canon, but then bringing the question up a little bit further. What are the books in your canon? And that'll tell, that'll tell you who your bishops are or whether you're, in the words of the high churchman, sede vacante. Sede vacante. Two I words. I did not say that word in the mirror this morning. Yeah. Uh, uh, sede is, is like seat, vacante, vacant. You're, you're in the body of Christ because of baptism, but the seat that your bishop should be sitting in is empty because you have rejected the episcopacy. But because you have accepted the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ and you have come to him through baptism, we would, the church, and this goes back to, uh, go back to Acts 11, go back to Acts 19, etc. No one's going to say you're outside of the body of Christ, but you're not completely brought into the church in the way that you should be. In the same way that when Paul writes to the, his church, to the, to the church of Rome, he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 11, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift through the laying on of my hands. And when you look at that phrase from Paul, in light of everything he's done in the book of Acts, and Peter's done in the book of Acts, it looks very clearly like this. The church in Rome was still under lay leadership from the time of Pentecost. That the organizational principles, the apostles, hadn't gotten there yet. Because Peter arrives after Paul. There's some traditions that say he's in Rome for 20 years. I don't know how they come up with that myself. I'd have to look that back up. Because if Paul would not go there to lay hands on them if Peter's already present. And this goes into that other idea that maybe there's a different quadrant of the city that he's addressing. I, I don't know. I think that's speculative. But when we can look at, and, and there's a place for that. But when we look at the witness of scripture, Paul's going to confirm them. He's going to go fill up what's lacking in their faith. Now he says later on in the, in the, in the verse about being encouraged, their faith and his faith, right? So there's that organic interdependence because he, he's going to need their financial help to get to Spain, which he brings up again at the end of the letter. Point being, it looks like the church in Rome has not come under that confirming organizing principle that the apostles bring yet. And Paul's the one who brings it. And then Peter is obviously there for a while as well. Both of them end up being martyred there. I suspect that Peter was probably in and out of Rome the same way Paul was. But I, I don't know. That, that, again, that's my that's speculation. I'm sure somebody's done an exhaustive study on Peter and they could probably send me an email with a couple of books on that. But <laughs> um, I kind of want to not go back to what Josh was saying earlier with his question. Yeah. Um, but you, you had mentioned this idea of splitting over customs and how that's very different because one of the, um, I think, greatest critiques of the branch theory is that when you look at it, and you, you let it be charted out pre great schism. They're all schisms. You start looking at these different bodies who are splitting off of the cross, uh, off the, the, the branch, so to speak. Um, so like you have the Dotnest, you have Arians, like you have all these different people who were, they say, well, these are schisms. Like they label them as such. You go past that. We get denominations. You kind of see, like, so, like, it's yeah. almost like the language changes. It changes because the locus of authority changes. 
much more pronouncedly at the latter portion of the Reformation, where personal conscience becomes the arbiter. And that was what Eck warned Luther of, is that you're going to get rid of the Pope and replace it so that every man is a Pope, which is effectively what happened. When you interject into that the belief that scripture, scripture is clear and sufficient without anybody teaching me what it means, which is what many of the, the reformers believed, then you have exacerbated what's going on, that I do have a legitimate responsibility to read the Bible for myself and interpret it for myself and make my own decisions based upon the light of my own conscience. Because God's word is true and he will tell me the truth, I don't need any other mediation. Then you bring that forward a little bit more into pietism, which affirms a, a heart sense. My, my, I feel it on the inside to be true. Well, now you're starting to see the, the, the legitimate ripple and rolling out of these practices. None of that, of what, we just, what I just mentioned, is in the 39 articles. In fact, the 39 articles say that scripture is not open to private interpretation. The 39 articles say you're, you don't even have permission to do your own independent fasting. Now, they're not saying you can't fast and pray. What they're saying is you can't live your Christian life apart from the community. So the articles go to great lengths to define what constitutes a church. And it's in the articles that we get this, the, the language for this branch theory. The church of Rome hath erred. And it mentions some of the other historic churches, too, that they've aired, right? And that uh, the Bishop of Rome hath no jurisdiction. Bishop of Rome hath no jurisdiction in this realm of England. And so in the articles, we get this historical parsing out of geography. And then the affirmation that what's happening in England is not schism. It's not a new church. In fact, it's retaining the apostolic succession. It's re retaining all of the books of the canon. And the the distinction amongst those books is a distinction that we find in the early fathers were not rejecting the Deuterocanonicals. They were published with, in every Anglican publication of the Bible, they were always published with it up until recent history. Right? Um, the sacraments. We're going to make it in the articles, we'll make a distinction between two and five, but we have all seven. And we insist upon all seven being done a, a specific way Look at the prayer book, right? So we could go into more and more of that to say they're being very clear that we are preserving the older form where there's not a universal bishop controlling everything. We are preserving the older Catholic practice. And that's when you take what you mentioned there with the denom denominations. It is a very serious thing that has to be considered. Is the denomination I'm in, if I had lived 1,500 years ago, a schismatic heretical group that broke itself away from the Catholic Church because we thought we were better. We thought we had more gifts of the Spirit. We thought we were holier, etc. And when you look at the founding of a lot of denominations, that's exactly what's driving it. And that was when I was reading some of that, that's what my, my thought immediately went to a thousand years in the future. And if you had to remake that, would you, would you still branch them off as denominations or would you branch them put them in like almost the same class that we did the first thousand years, which was schismatic. Um, and now I don't, obviously we don't know. We don't live a thousand years in the future. Well, I guess that depends on what happens, right? It does. I mean, I don't think it's looking pretty. Not to, not to be Debbie Downer over here, but I, I think you, 
the trend. The only other thought that I have is not specifically related to the, related to that question, as you stated it so eloquently. Be, before before you ask that, I have one more question, kind of related to what you were saying. Yeah. Um. Do you think that the branch theory is log like logically necessitates um, rejecting that the Church of England started with King Henry? Because if yeah. you if you say that it started with King Henry, then you are principally schismatic. You know what I'm saying? Versus saying we have been I, I, here I do, since. I don't, I don't think that they're logically congruent. I wouldn't charge schism to somebody who claimed that. Um, because in what way is he saying it? Yes, yes, yes. So I, I think that's, that's a, a nuance there um, that's important. And when you, when you think about schism, schism doesn't apply... It wouldn't apply necessarily to, to pioneer missions. It depends on what's going on and those kinds of missions works, right? Um, and that, that takes us, that we start to bridge this into that, that discipline of thought, but not, I don't think we can mm -hmm. go there today. But um, just because the idea of really tying like the, the schismatic nature of many organizations and groups that were propped up during the Reformation, that's, got, that's kind of like in, not that they are all, um, logically dependent on each other, or even that the English Reformation happened like continental European um, Reformation. Well, I mean, it's the Tractarians and the high churchmen who say to the continental ref reformers that you, your, your bishops are empty seats, mm -hmm. right? So they're very clear about that. Matter of fact, I think it's Newman before he becomes Roman Catholic, when, one of the tracts, I think it's in one of the tracts, where Newman says that um, to the continental reformers okay yeah you you needed to break away from certain claims and so you you did what you did and you maintained the church without your bishops but now it's time to come back into the fold church history would have been a very there are certain certain epoch decisions certain hinge decisions like if wesley had waited four months until samuel seabury was ordained there there probably would never have been a methodism in the United States and the way that it developed. If Calvin had conceded to being ordained as a bishop in the Church of England, which was offered to him, there's correspondence between it, then there would never would have been a reformed tradition in quite the same way, because obviously, if Calvin took that back with him back to Geneva, not only would that have affected Geneva, it also would have affected John Knox, who was one of the principal leaders of, of Scottish Presbyterianism which then addresses the issue of the English Civil War 100 years later. So you've got these very specific points in Christian history that I think are a big deal. I mean, I think even Fletcher, John Fletcher, who was one of Wesley's right-hand man uh, in early Methodism, Fletcher was a priest who had a church in England. And um, if I remember correctly, I think Fletcher was offered to become a bishop in the colonies I want to say somewhere around New York, but declined it because he didn't feel like he could leave his parish. But you go back and you look at that history and you're like, man, you should have done it because there weren't any in the U.S. in the, in the colonies. So you, you get these various epochs here and there that like, man, that could have really, we could have avoided unnecessary, unnecessary division. And I think that's where my mind goes to is the early Methodists. I mean, I don't, and I don't know why, but like, as I'm reading a lot of this stuff, I'm thinking about them. And I guess their decisions and how 
in many ways, uh, their decisions did cut them off from Anglicanism, the Church of England. Yeah, and they um, weren't able to reconcile. No, uh, they weren't. John, and, uh, Michael Ramsey was working on reconciliation with the English Methodists, and it, it didn't work out for them. Uh, now they're going. Now there's a lot of uh, unity, ecumenical unity, coming across Christian denominations, but it's not because of biblical orthodoxy. It's because of liberalization in moral practice and a dis like and the liturgy. They either become very staunch in certain liturgical expectations, or they dismiss it altogether. So when you come into the non-denom churches, which is its own thing, they just like the church doesn't exist. It's just a local gathering of people with a good band. They don't have any concept because for them, the incarnation of Jesus, if they think about it, was just Jesus. There's no extension. There's no, the church is just my individualized emotional turning to him. And then, you know, I'll change some of my moral behaviors and help feed kids around the world or something. And I'm not denigrating that, but when you put it in its context and you, you, you put it in relation to what the church has always taught, you suddenly see how deficient it is. And so the solution is, part of the solution is how do you come to affirm what's good and move it forward into fullness? And this is the struggle that we're going to be in, I think, for, for quite a while. I mean, there's like, we haven't mentioned this yet, this episode. But there's actively, and we're always in conversation about this in our private time, like when we're hanging out together, you, Alex, Adam, and all, all of us. Why you got a name drop? Because. <laughs> Take my name. Among the people. <laughs> among, just among, just how, how much, um, re, how much reformation is going on in different denominations and how there's a bunch of conversations happening behind closed doors and how like. You talked about 10 or 15 years, things changing that fast already, like 15 years ago. But 15 years from now, <clears throat> I know sometimes in Sunday school you mentioned how there could be some denominations, quote unquote, or they don't exist yeah. in 15 years. Yeah, they won't. They won't numerically. They won't. I think, I mean, this is just, it's not my opinion. The demographics are addressing this. 50 years from now, it's not even going to be that long. But 50 years from now, global Christianity is going to be very, very different. Very different. The lines of traditional separation have, will have changed. What it's going to be called? I don't know. I don't know. But we're, we're moving uh, into an entirely different Christian millennium. And that's been, that stuff's been, they've been writing that, about that since the late 80s, into the 90s. They could see the, 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 the shifting demographics. Yeah, and I, I think... Uh, this kind and of the heresies that they're going to deal with then? No, oh, yeah. no, they are yet. This kind we've of guessed at it, right? With the AI priests and stuff. Oh yeah, we've. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's funny how we yeah, do that long before that any of this stuff started to come. I've saw stuff about that on TV for the past couple of weeks. I, I get ads, literally, uh, like about like because I just about Bible studies and how to use AI to generate Bible studies or yeah uh, sermons, and I'm like, you you could just you know. Read the Bible and some comment. Like, I'm just saying, look, if you need that ways. to help get your sermon together, as convenient as that is, you might need to find yourself another job. I mean, personally, that's that's my take on it. That is definitely my opinion. That if you can't put together a sermon by yourself, well, 
let me let me let me take our topic and, and round it around so we can conclude it this way. Across North America, so let's come back into the North American context. Across North America, there are apostol there are bodies of churches, collections of churches, an archipelago of churches all across the country that are within the apostolic succession, and large chunks that are not. The ones that are within the apostolic succession have a spiritual responsibility to do what they can to work towards legitimate, true ecclesial unity. Like John 17. Yeah. And they are. That is, and it's been happening for a long time. And you'll have groups get together, then you'll have splits from other groups. And that is going to kind of be the ebbing and the flowing until more intentional, ecclesiastical, one, formation, and two, discipline become the norm. The challenge with the discipline part is that Western people have neither the stomach to give discipline or be disciplined. Not just in the church, but in the culture. We just don't have the capacity for it because we've become accustomed to getting what we want when we want it because I should have it because I would like to. Microwave culture. Even more than that, the sense of entitlement. There's no discipline. The Amazon Prime culture. And the, yeah, and the number of people who have spiritual wounds and traumas, not because they were, they were hurt by spiritual authorities, but the fact that a spiritual authority existed who didn't affirm their woundedness as something good, they interpreted then as justification for why they can't be in the church. So they, they have exacerbated their own woundedness and that's, that, is, that is across the spectrum because which in the church, in the public school system, in the military, you, you go find someplace and you're not told what you want. You're not affirmed in the way that you want to be affirmed. And now it's, it's discrimination, it's prejudice, it's violence, it's hatred. That's, that is, that is uh, moral and psychological and spiritual immaturity at its finest. At its finest. That's adolescence. That, that, that's two-year-old stuff. We've got to recapture in the formation of our clergy, because that's as the pulpit goes, so goes the church. As the church goes, so goes the culture. We've got to recapture in the formation of our clergy an interior sense of discipline and accountability to God, because he always sees to God, then to the self, the self being, I should hold myself to the expectations I know that I can do. And, and that's Paul's whole thing about the spiritual man not being judged by anybody. When those two things are rightly proportioned, that individual person will have respect for his ecclesiastical authorities, and he will have respect for his responsibilities, and he will have respect for the churches and the people that he's responsible for. And so if he does something that does require correction, he'll yield to it. If he's falsely accused of something, then he knows how to endure it and whatever that endurance looks like, you know, whether he's got to retaliate in, in a positive way or whether he's got to just like keep his head down and wait for it to blow over. There, there's, there's all kinds of stuff that goes into that. But the accountability to God and accountability to what God has put in, in, the, in the person, individual person, through the agency of the church. I'm not talking about that now. Right, right. You're talking Abraham about like the obvious things that within perspective of, of that person, being a part of the body of Christ to, yeah. to do, like show up to church 
Right. Like read your Bible. Right. Like James, pray. to him who knows the good and does it not to him, it is sin. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think of uh, the, the saying that you see a lot, easy, easy times make weak men, weak men make hard times, hard times make strong men. Um, strong men make easy times. I believe it's, it's kind of the, it's like the cycle. And I think it, it speaks to the idea that humans are intrinsically lazy and will always take the easier route. Um, and so when you're talking about this idea of implementing discipline, we, that's how you break that cycle. Like, for example, you look at guys that go and join the army and they walk out completely different. Why? Because somebody broke the cycle with discipline and difficulty. And so part of that is, like you said, putting discipline on the men leading so that they can then walk others into that and, and lead them into a disciplined lifestyle. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what Paul is pointing out with Timothy when he uses the example of a soldier. A soldier doesn't get, get con, um, engaged in civilian affairs. He just does what's pleasing to his commanding officer. And then Paul talks about the farmer who is patient, right? So Paul, Paul actually gives Timothy three different points there. Uh, and he says, you know, think on these things and, and the Lord will give you more insight on them. But they basically come down to focus, discipline, and patience. You, you cultivate those virtues in your life. And then First Peter... Sorry, the Apostle Peter picks it up with not only that, but the virtues with the other virtues. Yeah, I forget it's first or second Peter. Mm -hmm. He gives a list. Yeah. Yeah. So when that's happening in the clergy, that will affect the congregations. And the congregations will then affect the culture. And there are some places where that's acceptable, like your sports coach. If you do not show up, you, let's say you play baseball, football, soccer, whatever, and you don't show up to the practice, the coach says you're on the bench, you can't play. But I can't tell you how many times as a pastor, I've had people come into church I haven't seen in I don't know how long, and they'll say, hey, I'd like to sing in church today, especially in Pentecost churches. I'd like to sing a special today. <laughs> we talk about I haven't seen you in two months. I got my, I got my cassette tape. I'm ready. Yeah. And we had CD. Well, we did, when I started, it was cassette tape. But point being, it's like pastors, priests, deacons, bishops are the only people who are not allowed to exercise any kind of discipline. We're not, and when I say discipline, I mean simply just setting an expectation. Here's the expectation. And if you can't meet the expectation, don't assume you get the privileges. And that goes back into a, a lack of understanding about the church, a lack of understanding about ecclesiastical function and order, a lack of understanding about the liturgy. That in the liturgy, every member of the body is participating in the one priesthood of Christ in some particular way. And when you are failed to be present, and not just present, but fail to be present and prepared to fulfill your responsibility as part of the royal priesthood, you are not only um, diminishing the work of the person next to you, you are saying that the suffering of Christ is not worthy of your focus and attention. Because you're not going to participate in the priesthood the way you're supposed to, the royal priesthood, not the ordained priesthood. So that stuff... It's got to come back into the church and you've got to have clergy who are willing to say, you know, you didn't do this. So no, you can't do that. I think the other part of this that I think helps the branch theory and even going forward into the time that we don't know, we obviously don't have a DeLorean, so we can't hop in there and go, go somewhere. Speak for yourself. <laughs> but what I'm saying is what, what I'm thinking is um, right now we're at a table and there's like the book common prayer right there. Um, I think the Book of Common Prayer among 
among the people a part of the church Catholic is something very helpful for unity and for Christ for good Christian unity going forward. And you talk about understanding what the liturgy is. And that's so much in the book of prayer, um, weddings, funerals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's how you organize your life because the sacraments order your life. Fellowship precedes organization. And so how do we, what are practical steps towards reconstituting things as the Lord would have them based on John 17? Fellowship. Fellowship first. Go to joint prayer meetings. Go get lunches together. Go do outreaches together. Yeah, we ran into that Baptist minister on Sunday at Applebee's. He stopped by. Hey, we should catch up. You know oh, that? Saying? No, that yeah. was actually, he was one of the uh, Pentecostal pastors. But yeah, I mean, I thank the Lord that I've gotten, I mean, I've, I know the clergy around here, most of them. We get together, I mean, and they do different things. So they, they kind of break into their own groups. Some go to lunch, some go to prayer meetings, some go do whatever. And I partner in those various things with them uh, as much as I can to affirm everything gospel that they're doing, you know? And uh, to whatever extent I can do that, that's, that's one of the responsibilities I feel that I have as a priest. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned it. It's just right back to what you originally said um, out of Acts 11, mm -hmm. just that idea of, of Barnabas being sent out to them. And he gets there, and he's happy with what he sees. Yeah. Like, it's not just he gets there, like, oh, what a mess. No, he... Yeah. I've got friends who are not in churches that are actively part of the apostolic succession, and they'll tell you it's not. For some of them, because they don't believe it's necessary. For some, they don't understand it fully. For some, it has never been even part of their formation. But when they tell me that they had so and so many people give professions of faith and get baptized or um, so many exorcisms or so many, you know, missions trips plans. I don't hear that news and say, man, I, you guys are awful. I wish you would get into the real church. Well, they're already part of the body of Christ. They're already, they're already doing the things that are set before them. Do I think that they're missing something that is vital? Yes. But then I look at the churches in the apostolic succession and I say, some of y'all got to get this stuff together, right? And then I look in the mirror. You got to get that together, son. You got to, got to get this down, you know? So I think there's, we, when we, and this is a pastoral principle. Again, back to the clergy thing for a moment. Maybe we just should do a topic on this, but clergy have a spiritual responsibility to judge. They've got to be able to evaluate. The difficulty is that when they perceive what needs to be done, do they take the information as they're perceiving it and then use it as a bludgeoning tool for on people? Or do they or do they use it as a means to help the people they're leading navigate the choices they have to make? And that's very unsettling. Not just for the person the person who recognizes, hey, you know what? My pastor's probably figured out I gotta work on this. It's also unsettling for the pastor because he probably doesn't want to do it. You know what I mean, Josh? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, this is part of that dynamic. And you've got to, you've got to foster character so that men are trustworthy while they're doing that. And women are trustworthy while they're helping, you know, in spiritual formation and care for, for other ladies in their, their church, in the church. So well, the formation process is active. Like I know I, I, the week or so, I'm talking generally. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I, I think the key point of this is pray for the unity of the church. Right. Like, how do we leave this and say, well, what are the next steps? Like, you talked about accountability and the clergy, but pray for not the 
just invisible unity of the church. Pray for the visible unity of the church. Well, it's like the unity that's going on right now that Pope Francis is pressing with different groups uh, outside of the Catholic Church. And I know that some of our bishops in the ACNA have been in, in conversations with Rome about unity. And it really, it's how, uh, how do we have unity without amalgamation? How do we become one without just being absorbed and losing what the Holy Spirit has done over time? And those are important things to consider, very important things to consider. And how does that work? And, and, and I'm bringing that up at this point because there are people that say, well, we should not have any union with the Roman Catholic Church because of Francis' stances on certain issues. You're never, ever going to find at any epoch in history the church being exactly right in any of the branches. The trunk is good, but you're never going to find any of the branches at being, to being in the same, they're not all at the same levels of health, I'll put it that way. So don't let a, a collapsed portion of health in one thing keep you from the unity which is better for both. Because the strength, Lord willing, goes into the weaker part when there's recognition of unity to help it. When that's shepherded and stewarded correctly by godly bishops and laity are involved, you do not get what we've seen in lots of Protestant ecumenical groups, which is collapsing to the lowest common denominator, losing all distinction, and then advocating for a kind of theological liberalism that is nothing but heretical apostate rot. So, anyway. <laughs> we, we can keep going on this, I yeah. guess, but I, I, I hope that we, we've communicated the, the gist. Well, that seems to be it for today. Um, I would like to recommend that if you haven't already, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Um, and please subscribe, of course. Sometimes you can leave us a 10-star review if they had 10 stars. And smash that like button. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Anyways, um, I'm Joshua. I'm Adam. And I'm Daryl.